1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead. President Biden just spoke from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, moments ago after meeting with leaders, including Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, the man that the U.S. says ordered the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. President Biden says he brought up Khashoggi's murder and human rights issues with MBS at the top of the meeting.
3: I made my view crystal clear. I said very straightforwardly, for an American president to be silent on an issue of human rights is this consistent with, inconsistent with who we are and who I am.
1: Still, the Saudis are rejoicing at the meeting and President Biden's presence there at all, despite his campaign pledge to make Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah over Khashoggi's murder. President Biden, in fact, greeted MBS, the country's de facto ruler, with a fist bump earlier today, neither leader answering questions from the press at the very start of their meeting.
4: Jamal Khashoggi, will you apologize to his family, sir?
5: Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you. President Biden, is Saudi Arabia still
1: guys. A reminder, according to President Biden's own director of national intelligence, quote, we assess that Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, unquote. Among the reasons for that assessment, the DNI notes that among the murderous thugs who killed the Washington Post columnist and then chopped him up with a bone saw were seven members of MBS's, quote, elite personal protective detail, one that, quote, exists to defend the crown prince, answers only to him, and had directly participated in earlier dissident suppression operations in the kingdom and abroad at the crown prince's direction, unquote. The report also noting that, quote, the crown prince viewed Khashoggi as a threat to the kingdom and broadly supported using violent measures, if necessary, to silence him, unquote. Fully aware of the blowback they would face for today's fist bump with MBS, the White House kept the details under wraps until last night. President Biden denied the sit-down would even happen in the days leading up to the visit.
3: I'm not going to meet with MBS. I'm going to an international meeting. And are going
1: to be part of it. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live for us in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Caitlin, President Biden clearly wanting to take control of the narrative after the barrage of criticism over not only the greeting and meeting with MBS, but the fist bump.
6: Also, Saudi had really had all the stagecraft here, Jake. They were the ones who were set up when that fist bump took place. U.S. reporters weren't present when that happened. They really had so much control of this, handing out photos of Biden and the Saudi crown prince walking into this meeting. And so I do think that played a role in these last-minute remarks you saw from President Biden, given it's 11 o'clock at night here in Jeddah when he decided to come out and give a summary of what happened. In that meeting and jake he started with a list of what he thought they accomplished and he said he believed it was extensive and they got a lot of ground covered in that meeting and i'll I'll get to those accomplishments in a minute but of course the main questions were about jamal khashoggi and whether or not his death his murder was raised during that meeting. And at the end of his remarks, the president said that was one of the first things he raised in this meeting. He said later on that the Saudi Crown Prince denied personal responsibility in that, of course, U.S. intelligence agencies have assessed that he authorized the murder of the journalist. And I want to take a pause here, Jake, to note that that is also something that former President Trump told us, that the MBS had denied personal responsibility. And Trump said at the time, maybe he did, maybe he didn't biden says he relayed to mbs that he does believe he was personally responsible for jamal khashoggi's murder so he said he did push back when the crown prince denied any culpability on that front that certainly is notable reporters also asked him jake though you know how could he be sure that the saudi crown prince won't be complicit in another murder like he was with jamal khashoggi's and president biden was pretty candid he said he cannot be sure that that's not something he will do again he did laugh off a question about the criticism that he's gotten for that seemingly friendly fist bump that he had with the crown prince as he arrived to go into this meeting that lasted for nearly three hours jake when he was at the palace and one other thing i want to note because he was asked about criticism from jamal khashoggi's fiance, saying that she believed biden has blood on his hands for the next murder that the crown prince commits. The president said he is sorry she feels that way, but clearly he does not share that, Jake. So that is really notable, uh, given that that was such a part of the meeting. And obviously it's a very sensitive subject and the White House had not said before directly that Biden would bring it up. And he did bring it up, he says. and was very crystal clear on his feelings. On the accomplishments, he says that he feels they gained extensive ground and that's really notable in and of itself because when you heard from him on the campaign trail, Jake, he did not sound like they could have some kind of working relationship. And now he says they talked about the ceasefire in Yemen. They talked about threats to Saudi Arabia from Iran and what they're going to do about that. And of course, the thing that American consumers listening will want to know the most, they talked about oil. And the president did not say explicitly what's going to happen, but he said he does expect an announcement to happen in the coming weeks. And when he was asked, when can Americans potentially see this affect their gas prices, he predicted in a couple weeks, Jake.
1: All right, Caitlin Collins in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Thanks. I want to bring in CNN International Diplomatic Editor, Nick Robertson, who's also in Jeddah for today's uh, meetings. Uh, Nick, before uh, we get to your analysis, I just want to read this uh, from the publisher and CEO of The Washington Post, Fred Ryan. The Washington Post, of course, the former employer of Washington Post, columnist Jamal Khashoggi. And Fred Ryan said, the fist bump between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the crown prince, was worse than a handshake. It was shameful. It projected a level of intimacy and comfort that delivers to MBS the unwarranted redemption he has been desperately Seeking. So, Nick, we we heard President Biden list what he feels they accomplished today. Um, Do you think this was ultimately worth it in terms of the accomplishments he listed?
7: It's a very big question to answer in a, in, a, in a short way, Jake. But let me lay out a couple of points here. Before I came here to Saudi, I talked to a couple of opposition activists. They're not in the country because it wouldn't be safe for them to be in the country. Um, they both believe that unless uh, President Biden confronted uh, Mohammed bin Salman directly on the issue of Jamal Khashoggi, if he, if unless he did that directly, then that would have no impact at all. One of the people I spoke to was Lena Hathlaw. I'm naming her because a lot of people will be f- familiar with her sister, Lujain Hathlaw, who President Biden pressured uh, the Crown Prince to release early last year. She was released. She's still in Saudi. She can't leave the country. Her parents can't leave the country. And her sister spoke very eloquently to this point that anything less than than calling. Mah- Mohammed bin Salman out will fail. She said this is the only way that the United States can seek and expect to have any kind of pressure. And she said it can have pressure. President Biden's pressure has worked before. But the United States needs needs to keep it going and keep leaning on, on, on MBS. Uh, so in that respect, these opposition activists, uh, both would assess therefore that biden has gone the distance in this first meeting a lot more to go but making very clear on, on the on the murder of Jamar Khashoggi. I think on the other achievements, these have been things we've been hearing from the Saudis. They no longer want to be seen as a gas spigot for the world, but privately they've been saying, look at what OPEC Plus is doing. There have been increases over the past few months. There will be increases to come. So what my takeaway from that is, this is the type of diplomacy the White House was talking about, best done behind closed doors, and not have the Saudis feel that they are getting stuff like like the redemption, if you will, of MBS through that fist bump for free. They don't want the notion that they're being that they're being used as a gas figure. But but clearly there is going to be an increase of output of gas uh, and oil from from Saudi Arabia. So I think there was something of a gain in there. Would it have happened if President Biden hadn't come here? It's not clear. But what the Saudis have desperately wanted is this reset? And is the engagement of President Biden? Because they want the relationship first and foremost with the United States, not China, not Russia.
1: Nick Robertson in of Saudi Arabia. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, who's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Senator, I, I want to start um, with uh, your reaction to what President Biden said he told the Saudi crown prince. Um, was that enough, do you think?
8: Well, Jake, uh, no one has as strong a record uh, in the Senate uh, as vice president and president uh, as Joe Biden on human rights. And I did not get to hear his press conference. I was on my way in here to this studio. But from what I've been able to pick up in the last few minutes listening to your broadcast, uh, I am encouraged. I fully expected him to directly and upfront at the beginning of the meeting uh, raise with MBS uh, the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, tell the crown prince that uh, our intelligence community has concluded that he's responsible and to, going forward, sustain pressure uh, on the Saudi kingdom, on their leadership, on MBS uh, for a change in their human rights practices. Um, there are many other concerns we've had over the years about the war in Yemen, about domestic policy, about their regional influence. Uh, but the Jamal Khashoggi murder really crystallized long-standing concerns that many of us In Congress and in the American government, have had about um, Saudi conduct. Uh, And I'm, from what I've heard so far, um, uh, encouraged that President Biden directly and right at the front of that meeting uh, raised his grave concerns. Uh, He said this uh, both as a candidate uh, and as president um, that he sees that the conduct of MBS and the role of the Saudi kingdom uh, in this particular brutal killing uh, was uh, beyond the pale, was despicable. Uh, And I would expect that we will continue to balance advocating our core principles around human rights uh, with a sustained partnership with the Saudis that is critical for us Mm -hmm. uh, to sustain um, the unity of the West, that President Biden has played such a central role in pulling together in the months since Russia invaded Ukraine in February.
1: So, so Senator, first of all, Joe Biden, when he was running for president, he said he was going to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah nation. Okay, he said he was going to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah nation. He flew to Saudi Arabia and he fist bumped Mohammed bin Salman, the man responsible, according to Biden's own director of national intelligence, for ordering a brutal murder of a Washington Post journalist, killing him and then dismembering him with a bone saw. I mean, that fist bump photograph, I think a lot of Americans saw that and were revolted by it.
8: What I'm revolted by is what I saw in Bucha and what is a brutal and tough choice that our president faces um, is the path forward when Russians are committing horrific human rights abuses every day in Ukraine, when the unity of the West and NATO is at risk if we cannot secure additional resources um, for the gas and oil needs to replace Russian oil and gas in the coming months. And bluntly. Um, our president faced a tough choice. The only three countries that have significant untapped reserves are Venezuela, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. And I think our president made a tough choice, but one I can respect as long as he continues to raise and press human rights issues. Absolutely, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was horrifying. I would rather not be on this show saying that our president went and met with MBS. But... Given the situation we're in in the world today, given what changed on February 24th, given what we all know about the ongoing murders, the brutal killing of innocent civilians happening every single day in Ukraine, I support our president.
1: The fiance of Jamal Khashoggi tweeted this in response to the fist bump uh, photo. It says, quote, what Jamal Khashoggi would tweet today. And then there is a tweet from Khashoggi saying... Hey, POTUS, President of the United States, is this the accountability you promised for my murder? The blood of MBS's next victim is on your hands. Uh, the president's response to that was to say he, he was sorry that Hashogi's fiance felt that way. What do you say to her?
8: Well, I hope to have the chance to talk with her directly. Uh, I know that uh, senior White House officials did meet with her before this trip. Uh, And I think it is important that we listen um, to Jamal Khashoggi's widow, uh, fiancé, as you describe her, um, those uh, in the journalism community, those in the uh, Saudi dissident uh, and diaspora community um, who find this a profoundly offensive moment and are gravely concerned about what comes next. Um, I do think that engagement with MBS at a moment when he was making a choice between um, leaning more towards the West or leaning far further uh, towards Russia and China was a hard choice, but one where I trust our president to sustain his commitment to human rights uh, and to do the best thing he can in a tough circumstance.
1: Saudi activist uh, Lina Al-Hathloul, uh who was on the show yesterday, uh, she helped get her sister out of Saudi prison, her sister leading uh, human rights marches and and efforts in Saudi Arabia so that women can drive, because women are treated as if they are minors in Saudi Arabia. They do not enjoy the rights of men in any way, shape, or form. She told me yesterday that no matter what happens in these meetings, and we'll see how big these accomplishments end up actually being, it's already a win for MBS. Take a listen. The
9: important thing is how... MBS perceives it. For him, it's a big win. Biden is coming to Saudi Arabia. He has, you know, he completed all this scandal with a big win. Finally, Biden is coming to see him. And so he will be emboldened after that. He will feel like he's being rehabilitated and that no one will hold him to account after all these crimes.
1: As you know, Senator, the Saudis are the ones, the royal crown prince's uh, photographer. They're the ones who took the photo of the fist bump. U.S. journalists were not allowed to be there. They put it out on the Internet almost immediately. They love this. What do you see happening today? What accomplishments make this worth it?
8: Jake, that's the thing we're going to have to watch closely in the weeks ahead. Uh, What matters about this trip to Israel, um, to the West Bank, um, to the Gulf, uh, the whole series of meetings President Biden has had across several days, across several countries, is what comes next. Uh, What concrete and positive steps are taken to push back on Iran's aggression through their proxies in the region? What steps are taken to try and help uh, reconcile Israel and some of its regional neighbors? And what steps are taken uh, to further open um, Saudi society or um, to embolden MBS uh, in a negative way? I think that all is yet to be seen. So it's tough to gauge this meeting today just a few moments after it concluded. And I'm not going to measure it just based on a photo op. I'm going to measure it based on what happens uh, in the days and months ahead. Um, I am someone who, like President Biden, is committed to making human rights central to our foreign policy, um, but who also recognizes that there are human rights violations in countries all over the world. And we need to be strong. We need to be able to deliver to our allies in Europe and to the American people an answer to inflation uh, and to prices at the pump, Uh, And to a positive path forward. When MBS first came into a position of power in the Saudi kingdom, he had a very ambitious proposal for how to reform the kingdom. Um, And as the months and years went by, many of us in initially concern and then horror um, saw their conduct in Yemen. And then ultimately, um, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi um, made us conclude that this was not a redeemable regime. Um, President Biden chose to open a door for a path forward for them today. We have to see how they conduct themselves, how, in particular, MBS conducts himself. This has not wiped away uh, the permanent stain on MBS and on the Saudis of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The entire world is going to watch what happens in the months and years ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, And I, for one, intend to watch closely whether they make any positive changes or whether they are simply, as the activist you just cited put it, emboldened to continue with bad behavior.
1: Democratic Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, thanks for your time. We have a lot going on this Friday. Coming up, a warning to the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party about an indictment that might be in his future. Then, will Sri Lanka have a government next week, a look at the week of political chaos? Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead. A Georgia County District Attorney told the state Republican Party chairman he could possibly be indicted as part of her investigation into Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The Georgia Party chairman, David Schaefer, acted as a pro-Trump elector in Georgia and helped organize that slate of fake, fraudulent electors. CNN's Sarah Murray's here. Sarah, wh- what might this mean for Schaefer?
10: Well, look, it remains to be seen. Sources tell me and Zach Cohen, one of my colleagues, that he did receive what is known as a target letter, essentially explaining you're a target of this investigation. It's possible you could face an indictment. You know, we don't know if that could be imminent, if that could be down the road. We also don't know if maybe the district attorney wants something else from him that she hasn't gotten so far in order to avoid indictment. Initially, he had been cooperating with the prosecutors there. He was under the impression that he was a witness in this investigation and he was sharing information with them about his role as a pro-Trump elector, about, you know, his efforts in sort of organizing this slate of electors. I think the people around him felt like he hadn't done anything wrong because he made public at the time, you know, that they were trying to do this in case Donald Trump somehow managed to win in court. But it is clear now that he has some legal exposure. What is unclear is whether he could actually face an indictment. Obviously, we know the DA there is chugging ahead in this investigation, Jake.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead, CNN exclusively reporting that the Department of Homeland Security inspector general briefed the special committee investigating the January 6 insurrection today regarding the U.S. Secret Service erasing text messages that were sent both the day before and the day of the January 6 Capitol attack. The inspector general says the texts were deleted after they had been requested as part of its watchdog investigation into the insurrection. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us. Now, Jessica, we're now learning that the January 6 committee is hoping to question the Secret Service about these texts. Tell us more.
11: Yeah, they just wanted more information here because they're really concerned about this different version of events that are it's emerging between the Inspector General and the Secret Service. So committee members got that briefing from the IG today. So now they want the Secret Service to explain why these texts from January 5th and January 6th aren't accessible. So here's what the IG revealed about that in a letter to congressional committees this week. He put it this way, saying many U.S. Secret Service text messages from January 5th and 6th, 2021, were erased as part of a device replacement program. The U.S. Secret Service erased those text messages after OIG requested records of electronic communications from the Secret Service as part of our evaluation of events at the Capitol on January 6th. The Secret Service though is pushing back, saying that any implication that the erasures were malicious is just wrong. And they said this in a statement, DHS OIG requested electronic communications for the first time on February 26, 2021, after the migration was well underway. The Secret Service notified DHS OIG of the loss of certain phones data, but confirmed to OIG that none of the texts it was seeking had been lost in the migration. So the Secret Service pushing back on this, they also say that they've been cooperative. They say they handed over 800,000 emails, nearly 8,000 Microsoft Teams chat messages. But our team has learned the Inspector General went directly on multiple occasions to DHS Secretary Mayorkas to complain that the IG just wasn't getting the information he needed for a review of the Secret Service conduct over January 6th. So, Jake, now the committee is pressing for answers, saying they need to hear from Secret Service.
1: All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Ron Brownstein. He's a CNN political analyst and a senior editor for The Atlantic magazine. Ron, I want to start with this reporting that the Georgia district attorney, this district attorney in Georgia, rather, is telling the state GOP chair that he could possibly be indicted in the state's election probe. What, What does this tell you about the investigation in Georgia?
12: It's kind of remarkable, right, that the Georgia Fulton County DA, with all the vast resources of that office, uh, seems to be further ahead than the justice department in uh, in examining you know the potential criminal liability on 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 many on aspects of this I mean it, it is it is important I mean they do seem to be serious uh, down there in terms of looking at the extensive efforts that, Trump and his allies made both to overturn the election in Georgia and also to promote this this fake uh, elector scheme. It really, uh, to me, it just kind of underscores one of the broadest conclusions, I think, coming out of the January 6th investigation is how broad this was. I mean, how widespread there was willingness to go along uh, inside the Republican Party with Trump's efforts to overturn the election.
1: There's also this new reporting you just heard from Jessica uh, about the U.S. Secret yeah. Service erasing text messages Uh, shortly after they were requested by the inspector general's office of the Department of Homeland Security. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, I think it's the same
12: story. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things we are learning, if you think about uh, January 6th, our kind of initial conception of it, Uh, It was almost as if it was a kind of a random eruption of kind of Trumpian willfulness and volatility. Uh, And in fact, what we've learned uh, is that it was the culmination, as Liz Cheney said at that first hearing, of a multi-pronged, multi-month effort uh, that included uh, legal uh, activities; it included political activities that, in effect, had a paramilitary arm uh, with the with the um, uh, insurrection itself and the riot at the capital uh, itself, and 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 bled down into the states in the way that we were just talking about. And the the thought that there are questions about what the Secret Service was doing on that day um, and and whether they are being fully forthright about what agents were communicating with each other. Um, again, it just to me underscores the 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 enormity of, of what we are are witnessing and I think it's something that obviously the Senate is going I assume the house is going to want to get a uh, much more understanding of exactly what was said and, and what uh, what kind of records ha- have been destroyed.
1: There have been some Secret Service individuals who have testified behind closed doors. My understanding is at least one of them, Tony Renato, gave a lot of I do not recall answers when asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the committee chairman, Benny Thompson, uh, tells CNN uh, that he wants the Secret Service to testify before the committee, I assume, in an open hearing uh, and under oath and live. Uh, do you think that will happen?
12: Well, I, I think their general practice has been usually to, you know, interview people on camera first before they put them in front of the in front of the country. Look, I don't know. I mean, they, they, right now, the only hearing that I think we are guaranteed is the is the hearing next week. But it, it is clear, Jake, as this has gone on. Right. I mean, it, it, it's not as if the areas of inquiry are narrowing. They're expanding. I mean, you, you are seeing more connections, broader involvement, issues about witness tampering, about cover up Um and, and I think they are going to be investigating and turning over stones and finding serious information right up until the last hour they have if Democrats lose control of the House in November.
1: There is a, a D.C. police officer uh, who is apparently corroborating yeah. uh, at least some uh, of the testimony of what Cassidy Hutchinson says. she heard from Tony Ornato uh, after the confrontation between the Secret Service and President Trump. In the presidential SUV, uh, let's take a listen to just an excerpt of what she told the committee uh, about what Tony Ornato had told her happened.
13: The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing.
1: Bobby is Bobby Engel, the president's Secret Service agent at that moment, and apparently Tony Ornato told Cassidy Hutchinson that story in front of. Uh, Bobby Engel. Now, since she testified, there's been some back and forth about uh, the heated exchange Trump actually had with the Secret Service detail when they told right. him uh, he could not go to the Capitol. But now you have at least some corroboration from a D.C. police officer. Yeah. And look, we also have Look, we know uh, it, her credibility as a
12: witness, based on what we were told at the hearing this week is bolstered by the fact that does not appear to be that Pat Cipollone uh, disputed significant parts of her testimony regarding him. So she's already being corroborated uh, in one area of her testimony. And I think that at the moment gives her the benefit of the doubt uh, over, you know, someone who has not been uh, in public uh, and, and as you say, have, has a lot of uh, I don't recalls um, whether Trump grabbed for the steering wheel or not. The fact that he wanted to go to the Capitol when he knew that the crowd was armed uh, and it could only be a source of further kind of inflaming of the situation, I think, is significant. And beside the legal question, I mean, there is the political question of what is all of this meaning for his prospects in 2024. And I do believe it that the, that the revelations of the January 6th committee, uh, not to mention the events of January 6th themselves that we all saw in real time, have had an effect on him i mean they're not cratering his support the bottom is not going to fall out but whether they've lowered the ceiling uh, a couple points i think is a very real prospect i mean we saw in that poll this week the new york times Siena poll 55, 56 percent of Americans say that he went so far as to endanger American democracy. 20 percent of Republicans, maybe not a, an overwhelming number, but a significant one in terms of whether people will be willing to entrust him with the power of the presidency again. Uh, and, and you know, we're, we're getting reports at the same time that he's more likely than not to, to announce even before the midterm election, because he sees it in his interest as in a way to make it tougher for either Georgia or the Justice Department uh, to indict him.
1: Yeah. Ron Bronstein, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always good to see you. Coming up next, the Indiana doctor who performed an abortion for that 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio is now responding to the legal threats coming from the attorney general of Indiana. Stay with us. In our health lead, the attorney general in Indiana says his office is investigating the physician who performed an abortion for a 10-year-old Ohio girl who'd been raped and impregnated by her rapist. And had to travel to Indiana for the procedure because Ohio's laws are so restrictive now after Roe v. Wade has been overturned. CNN's Jean Casares joins us now live. And Jean, how is this all playing out in Indiana?
14: Well, that was supposed to be the story, what you just said. But the attorney general of Indiana came out earlier this week saying that the doctor who had performed this medical abortion, that she wasn't following protocol with the mandatory reporting. And that has continued. And he says that investigation is ongoing. We just got some brand new documentation and it is from the attorney representing Dr. Caitlin Bernard. It is directed to the attorney general of Indiana, Todd Rokita. It is a cease and desist letter saying for he to stop immediately spreading these mistruth statements about Dr. Bernard that it constitutes defamation per se, and that they are asking him to not say anything out of the scope of his official position, because then it will form the basis of a defamation action. Well, what we did at CNN, we went to the Illinois, the Indiana State Health Department, and we were able to obtain public records. And of course, there's a lot of, of things that are blacked out and you cannot see But there is a listing of abortion procedures. And on June 30th, it says a procedure was performed of a 10-year-old girl. The documentation is there. That is sent by the doctor. She did it within three days, as it required for a minor. So that seems to be foolproof right there. We have reached out to the Attorney General of Indiana for a response to this letter. Have not received anything. But I want to tell you very quickly an update to the legal case, because that is important, too. This is a 10-year-old girl They are currently doing forensic DNA testing of the fetus to confirm the DNA identity because Fuentes was charged, based on his confession and her ID, this would be forensic analysis confirmation.
1: All right, Gene Casares, thank you so much. Coming up, a high-flying headache. Which airports you might want to avoid as more airline problems mount? Stay with us. In our money lead, the summer pain of flight cancellations is far from over. Bad weather is forecasted at major hubs this weekend. To date, airlines in the U.S. have canceled more than 100,000 flights this year alone. CNN's Pete Monteen takes a look now at which airports are facing the most issues.
15: With storms threatening already jammed U.S. airports, the summer of travel pain could get even worse this weekend. New data shows airlines have canceled 30,000 flights nationwide since Memorial Day. A flight-aware analysis for CNN shows Newark topping the charts, where 8% of all flights have been canceled. 8% is pretty high.
11: Newark is the worst.
15: (laughs) Florida airports take three of the top 10 spots for flight delays. A third of all flights from Orlando have been
16: delayed this summer. The pain uh, is not spread out evenly. Some airports have
14: much bigger problems than others.
15: This new breakdown comes as passengers are packing planes in levels not seen since before the pandemic. But short-staffed airlines say the federal government is also short-staffed at air traffic control facilities.
13: New
2: York, Newark and Florida really are air traffic control challenges. There's different issues at some other airlines, but those two places are really struggling.
4: The FAA
15: puts blame back on airline staffing issues, as well as bad weather and heavy air traffic. At its round-the-clock command center in Virginia, the FAA showed us how Florida airspace can become clogged with flights, like a traffic jam on a highway.
17: If you have a couple of thunderstorms right over the center of the state, now you've got limitations on where you can go, especially in the summertime. If you want to get there on time, try to get there before lunch.
15: Airlines argued $50 billion in pandemic aid would make them ready for this rebound. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg tells CNN he is seeing improvements, but still expects airlines to do better. Look, we are counting on
18: airlines to deliver for passengers and to be able to service the tickets that they sell.
15: United Airlines says the problems at Newark are so bad because there are simply too many flights scheduled here for the airport to handle in fact united is even scaling back its summer flying here but these problems go beyond newark jake LaGuardia, reagan national raleigh and cleveland round out the top five for cancellations since memorial day jake
1: pete monteen in newark new jersey thanks so much coming up next we're on the ground along the u.s mexico border with a look at how the migrant border crossings are presenting a new problem for the biden administration stay with us In our national lead, hundreds of migrants in search of a better life are arrested daily along the U.S. southern border as they attempt to cross into the United States illegally. But those arrests and other potentially deadly risks do not apparently dissuade them from making the dangerous journey. President Biden met with the president of Mexico this week as part of an effort to work with foreign countries to help curb mass migration into the United States. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez reports now from Yuma, Arizona, on who's arriving at the border.
5: mass migration is landing at the U.S. doorstep. With conditions getting worse in their countries of origin, migrants are arriving in droves, relieved as they cross the border. Sometimes the situation at home eliminates any possibilities, she says. In this part of the border, U.S. authorities arrest up to 1,000 migrants daily. The influx is an alarming trend, made even more difficult by the nationalities of the people crossing the border. Here past midnight, in Yuma, hundreds of migrants have already crossed into the U.S. and turned themselves over to Border Patrol. They come from a range of countries, including as far as Russia. And they all, after speaking with them, have said the same thing. They are looking for a better life here in the United States. Yuma Border Patrol Sector Chief Chris Clem described the situation as dynamic.
19: We were having countries from Mexico, Central America, things that we could process and you know, take their biometric data and put them in removal proceedings and or return them back to Mexico. The countries we're receiving now, those nationalities, are, are flying in, arriving to the border, and you know they're having to be processed, and there's just so many of them, that it is posing a challenge to the workforce.
5: Authorities can turn back migrants at the southwest border, back to Mexico, or their home countries under a Trump-era pandemic rule known as Title 42. But it doesn't apply to everyone. That, coupled with frosty relations with countries like Venezuela and Cuba, keeps the U.S. from removing certain people, meaning they might be released while going through immigration proceedings.
19: With technology and resources, not only for our agents, but also for the overall mission in the former surveillance systems, um, and then uh, we continue to add to the processing and the humane care and, and, uh, of the migrants in custody, wraparound medical services. Um, food uh, uh, contracts to make sure that we've got plenty of food and and, and, uh, to be able to take care of those in custody.
5: The pace of people journeying north presents a steep challenge for President Biden, and one he raised with Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador this week.
3: One of those is migration at historic levels throughout our hemisphere. Like us, Mexico has become a top destination of migrants. And, uh, and here's what we're going to do to uh, address it together.
5: The U.S. has looked to countries further south for help, including Costa Rica, where many migrants travel through. An agreement between the two, obtained by CNN, outlines commitments to strengthen enforcement, exchange information on migrant flows, and stabilize host communities. But Biden continues to face political pressure from Republicans who say he's not doing enough. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed legislation to shore up funds for border security and following the example set by Texas has sent 25 buses with migrants to Washington DC. Even so people continue to come with hope of a new life on the horizon. And Jake just this morning we saw similar scenes play out as migrants lined up along the wall Behind me, the sector chief tells me that he expects to reach 250,000 arrests in the coming days here in the Yuma sector so far this fiscal year. That would already surpass all of the last fiscal year. Jake.
1: Priscilla Alvarez in Yuma, Arizona, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, we're live at the world's largest truck stop. Yes, that's a thing. To see just how a critical part of America's economy is, bidding, is being hit hard by inflation. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, acres of crops that once fed the world, now are just fields of destruction. How do you feed a country hammered by war? Chef and philanthropist Jose Andreas joins us live. Plus, say it ain't so, Joe, Senator Joe Manchin doing it again, shooting a figurative bullet through Senate Democrats' climate change agenda and leading this hour. Economic good news, economic bad news. Americans say they're feeling slightly better about the economy compared to last month when sentiment was at an all-time low. Inflation remains excruciatingly painful for most consumers. The cost of everything from cookies to clothing, gas to groceries, skyrocketed. Joining us now live to discuss the CNN's Rahel Solomon. Rahel, to help us understand this new data out from the University of Michigan's closely watched Survey of Consumers.
9: Well, Jake, to your point, it was another day of mixed data. Wall Street appeared to like it, though, all of the major averages closing up around 2 percent, feeling better, apparently, investors than most Americans, because our latest read into consumer sentiment uh, showed a slight Bounce in consumer sentiment in terms of how Americans are feeling about the economy and the state of their own personal finances, but still remaining pretty close to all time lows. The director of the survey saying that the share of consumers blaming inflation for eroding their living standards continued its rise to 49 percent, matching the all time high reached during the Great Recession. These negative views endured in the face of the recent moderation and gas prices at the pump. Jake, essentially, the, the declines we have seen in gas prices still really not lifting sentiment much because even if you are seeing some relief at the pump, which most Americans are, you're not seeing it anywhere else. You're not seeing it at the grocery store. You're not seeing it practically anywhere else in your day. And that's reflected in this latest consumer sentiment reading.
1: So Americans remain quite sad about the state of things, but we also keep buying things. So is this... Retail therapy, is it something more nuanced? What is it?
9: I think it depends on who you're, who you're talking about. So we got retail sales data today, which showed uh, a better than expected jump in consumer spending of 1%. Jake, to put that in perspective, the expectation heading into this report was an increase of eight-tenths of a percent. But what you have here is a tale of two consumers. For Americans who can afford it, who are still sitting uh, okay financially, they are still spending, they're shifting where they're spending to services and experiences For folks, however, who are struggling with inflation right now, they are shifting their spending. They're spending it more on essentials and less on necessities. And that's what that report reflects today. So the consumer has remained resilient. The question is, for how long?
1: Hal Solomon, thanks so much. Appreciate it. There is one thing pushing up the price of almost everything you buy right now. Diesel fuel has had a major domino effect on the economy because the vast majority of goods in the U.S. are transported by trucks, which, of course, run on diesel. As CNN's Ryan Young reports, that means truck drivers are in the unique position of spotting economic headwinds before almost anyone else.
4: Just off I-80 in Iowa, it's hard to miss. Part festival, part convention, part job fair. It's the largest gathering of American truck drivers in the country. Drivers here telling us they are facing challenge after challenge, from loss of friends to COVID, to supply chain shortages, to higher and higher fuel prices, yet they continue to deliver for the American consumer.
13: It's been tough, especially now with the the fuel
7: prices the way they are.
4: Diesel prices have risen more than 50% so far this year.
7: You know, you can't uh, expect the people to keep paying and paying and paying. They're going to run out of money eventually. Then what are you going to do?
4: Prices are going up across the board, and many truckers here said orders are getting canceled and demand is slowing. For some, the outlook for the next few months is grim.
1: I think there's a fear out there that that is being placed we got to figure out a way to to get these fuel prices back and 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 get back to business
20: and the economic impact of these big rigs is tremendous you think about almost 72 percent of all goods in this country are moved by truck and that has a real ripple effect you're talking about 12.7 trillion dollars of goods moved throughout this country by truck alone i
21: can't say i can blame one person for it all
4: Bill Abbott owns a farm and travels across the country with his vintage truck to shows like this one. He believes change is needed.
21: It takes a leader
4: that can grab the bull by the
21: horns, but the economy such now, we need a, a leader that's going to grab the bull by the balls. I've never seen anything like it. Before I've used to my savings, I made money, we went on trips, and I didn't spend much. Now I'm spending a lot and I'm losing back all, all my savings.
4: There's also a can-do attitude that reverberates all around here. Just keep right on going. Terry and Adam Wurzer own a small company that makes products for semi-trucks and they say there's no choice but to push through the tough times.
21: People, especially around here, they, you know, just, just because times get tough, they still work hard and they still fight their way out of the hole and they keep going.
4: The Biden administration says it sees and hears the plight of truckers and is aware of the driver shortage. It plans to help make it easier for those wanting to get their commercial driver's license while also hoping to address concerns ranging from poor road conditions to wait times at delivery points. For some, they say that can't happen soon enough.
3: The other administration wasn't like this. Was that a false economy? Now, I think maybe this is. Hopefully things will cycle out. Don't know.
20: No matter where we went, people were talking about the economy and how much money they were spending on a day-to-day basis. I mean, look at all the trucks behind us. And one of the reasons why we shot so much of this from above is you really get an idea of just how many trucks are here. You're talking about hundreds of trucks that have lined up to be here and talk the economy. One of the things they're pushing forward is hoping that the Biden administration really gets the roads fixed because they said that's having an economic impact on just keeping these cars on the road. But that other part that everyone can understand, it doesn't matter what party you're in, is what fuel prices have ended up being for people who work in this industry. The diesel prices are crushing folks because they say, yes, they're getting a surcharge from some of the shippers. But at the same time, when you go to a pump and you're clicking out at about $1,000, that's really taking away from their bottom line. And one driver told me, he's even having some of his suppliers cut back on parts of the shipment in terms of the fee that he's getting because they're trying to make it a profit on the other end. So you understand the cascading effect. They would hope that someone from Washington would be here, walk among these truck drivers, some of them who worked for 40 years traveling this country, just to hear what they want to say in terms of how this country is deteriorating and parts of the infrastructure, the roads, and how they're being handled. Jake's a complex subject, but a lot of people had a lot of voices that they wanted to share with us, and I'm glad we got to do it. All
1: right, Ryan Young, great report. Thanks so much. Reporting live from the world's largest truck stop in Walcott, Iowa. Thank you so much. The Russian invasion of Ukraine taking a brutal toll not only on prices, but on world hunger. Chef and founder of World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres, will join us live next with more on his efforts to feed the innocent victims of Putin's invasion. Plus, President Biden says he raised the subject of the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi with Saudi's crown prince, the man the U.S. says directly ordered the killing. Stick with us. In Sri Lanka, the country's embattled president who fled that nation earlier this week has formally resigned, capping off a chaotic, days-long political crisis that saw protesters storming the presidential residence and the prime minister's office. But as CNN's Will Ripley reports for us now, larger problems remain for the country.
22: For a nation in crisis, a badly needed victory dance. As news broke, Sri Lanka's most hated president finally resigned. Thousands defied a nationwide curfew, turning the capital, Colombo, into a carnival. A few hours of fun following months of fury.
20: What they did to this country, we were absolutely pissed off because they ruined this country. They robbed this country. They robbed the innocent people. They robbed the dollars.
22: Those so-called robbers he's referring to, the Rajapaksa brothers. They managed to hold on to power for decades, running Sri Lanka like a family business running its economy into the ground.
13: The the war was between one family and one nation. So we have conquered finally.
22: Protesters battled tear gas and water cannons, storming the prime minister's office, occupying the presidential palace, soaking up the luxurious lifestyle of an exiled leader living large. As everyday folks faced hours-long lines for food, fuel, and medicine. Sri Lanka's worst financial crisis in 70 years, blamed on bad policies and corruption, leaving an entire nation bankrupt. Mohamed Anif pushes his son's wheelchair to dialysis five days a week, a nearly eight-mile round trip, six kilometers each way. Skyrocketing inflation means public transit costs six times more than it did just months ago. Even though the president's gone, he says, we cannot celebrate. We're in the same place, same as before. Our sorrows still remain. This single dad can barely afford a loaf of bread. As his exiled president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, flew in luxury to Singapore, where he tendered his resignation, appointing his prime minister, a family friend, as acting president. Renil Wickremesinghe is the ruling party's nominee to serve out the next two years. He's the same guy whose house was set on fire last week by protesters demanding his resignation. For now, Sri Lanka's highest court has temporarily blocked some senior officials from fleeing the country, including the two remaining Rajapaksa brothers. The one who got away, the self-exiled former president, could be seeking asylum from potential criminal charges.
13: We are fighting as one nation until he's getting proper punishments for whatever he has done.
22: If that doesn't happen, if Sri Lanka's problems don't turn around quickly, these streets could once
1: again be filled with far more than fireworks. That was Will Ripley reporting for us from Colombo, Sri Lanka. How do you feed the world when Ukraine's breadbasket is now just scorched earth? That story's next. In our world, lead a Russian war on food. Ukrainian farmers are calling it a second front in Putin's invasion of their country. Russia is purposefully setting Ukrainian wheat fields on fire, putting a further strain on the country's grain exports, which much of the world relies upon. CNN's Ivan Watson reports now from a farm in southern Ukraine where farmers are racing to save their crops from Russian strikes.
18: A war against one of the biggest breadbaskets in the world. Ukraine's fertile farmland, now a battleground. Military drone footage, exclusively obtained by CNN, shows Russian artillery pounding wheat fields, burning the summer harvest charcoal black. Farmers race to protect their crops. Until Russia's invasion, Ukraine was the world's fifth largest exporter of wheat. All right, this looks like some kind of munition over here. Now Ukrainian farmers are harvesting a deadly crop. Mikhail says these are pieces of uh, Russian rockets that they gathered out of the fields. Mikhail Lyubchenko takes me on a tour of his farm. He'll show us. That's another shell strike. Acres of wheat waiting to be harvested within earshot of pounding Russian artillery. This is absolutely surreal. We're amid the wreckage of previous battles, armored personnel carriers, military vehicles. And then you've got farmers out here that are harvesting wheat right now. The... Vehicles that have been destroyed here, this could have happened back in March, February, much earlier. But we're also seeing these impact craters from shell strikes that we're told probably took place within the last couple of weeks. Despite the threats, these brave farmers still bring in their harvest, only to face another obstacle. This is 3,000 tons of wheat from last year's harvest. He can't sell this wheat because the Russian military has blockaded Ukraine's ports, so there's no way for this to be sold except at an, an enormous loss. Ukrainian ports where ships once carried millions of tons of grain a month to global markets now blockaded by the Russian Navy. The logjam driving up global food prices, triggering warnings of famine in some of the world's poorest countries. Last month, the Ukrainian military forced Russian troops to abandon Ukraine's Snake Island in the Black Sea. The Snake Island victory freed up channels to the Danube River, Ukraine reactivated Soviet-era ports on this waterway as an alternative route for the export of grain. But experts warn the river can only handle a fraction of Ukraine's pre-war cargo. This week, Ukrainian, Russian, and UN delegations meeting in Istanbul say they reached a deal in principle to resume shipments of grain by sea. But Ukrainian farmers continue to face deadly threats on land making it too risky for many to plant crops for next year. This frontline farmer vows not to give up.
7: Our soldiers
18: soldiers are fighting and dying to get rid of these occupiers, he says. We need to feed our country, the soldiers, and help the whole world with our food. That's why we'll keep working. He calls his farm the second front in this deadly war. Now, Jake, there is some hope that this preliminary deal reached between the Russians and the Ukrainians with Turkish mediation uh, to perhaps break the logjam and allow the sea export of Ukrainian grain, that, that that could be an improvement. But even if it does move forward, there will be serious logistical challenges. Ukraine's Black Sea coast is heavily mined. In fact, here in Odessa, the military says a man died when he broke the rules and tried to go swimming off a beach and was beheaded by By a mine that he hit. Beyond that, there's the longer term question. Farmers have to plan months, years ahead of time to plant their crops. And with no end to this war in sight, experts are predicting next
1: year's harvest could drop by 50 percent. Jake. Ivan Watson in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. As the war on food in Ukraine continues, Some courageous people are stepping in and feeding those in need. Joining us now is one of them, chef, humanitarian, and founder of the World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres. Jose, so good to see you. So our own Alex Marquardt, who's been on the front lines reporting on the war, he was in the Kharkiv region recently. He saw cars from the World Food Kitchen bringing in boxes of food for people there. When I was in Ukraine in April, I saw World Food Kitchen everywhere. Your organization is in Ukraine saving lives.
23: Yeah, thank you. Uh, listen, we have more than five, 6,000 Ukrainians working with us. World Central Kitchen, we are right there 12 hours right after the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. And up to today, we're about to hit five months. We are about to reach 100 million meals. Right now, we are doing around two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand 300,000 meals. And then we are doing around 50, 55, 25 pound bags that we distribute to families, which each one equals roughly 20 meals, closely to doing over 1 million meals a day on top of the home meals so i'm very proud of the work the team we've been doing there um we are feeding people that they need food because supermarkets are closed because the infrastructure is destroyed that's why we are there but i want to make sure everybody understands ukraine have food to feed themselves what who doesn't have food to feed the world is the rest of the world
1: yeah Uh, World Central Kitchen has essentially become a lifeline for so many Ukrainians who have either fled their homes or or are trapped in the front lines. How are you going to be able to sustain serving millions of Ukrainians while Russia continues its
23: attacks? Well, uh, people in Ukraine, obviously, they're going through... Everybody in Ukraine is in danger. And every day, we we are praying that nothing um, will happen. We got kitchens destroyed. We got train wagons destroyed and many of the things you you said um, before i joined you uh they're right we need to make sure that we open right now the ports in ukraine especially you know remember world central kitchen we were the first humanitarian organization i was in that boat where we went many times up the danube all the way to ismail but it's not a big river to achieve everything Ukraine wants, which is to export the more than 20 million tons of grain that they have to feed the world. And let me tell you, last uh, two weeks ago, I was able to cook for the gathering in Madrid, where the NATO ministers, the foreign affairs ministers, and all the heads of states of so many countries were invited by the Spanish President Sanchez. I was the chef of the different events, but they gave me the opportunity to speak. And I was able to tell everyone, that food is a national security issue the war in ukraine has been going on for eight years and now we are worried that we don't have food to feed the many parts in the world that depend on the grain coming out of ukraine what are they thinking we need to start taking food seriously food is a national security issue and presidents and governments are going to have to look at food in the same way they look at defense, in the same way they look at uh, uh, energy, because if not, I'm very afraid that by the end of this year, 2023, we're going to have one of the biggest famines that humanity has ever seen. Because between wars, hurricanes, climate change, Europe right now is going through a devastating heat, It's fires everywhere. If we are not worried, the food that we take for granted in the month, years ahead, It's gonna be a big fight to feed humanity, and I'm telling you, we are not ready for it.
1: So if people want to donate to World Central Kitchen, they can go to WCK.org, WCK, WorldCentralKitchen.org. Chef and humanitarian Jose Andres, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Thank you for having me. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia going against his own party again. What exactly was inside the deal that he just torpedoed? That's next. Topping our national lead in our Earth Matters series, late last night, moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia torpedoed the Democratic Party's economic package. Manchin informed party leader Chuck Schumer, Senate leader Chuck Schumer, that he, quote, unequivocally will not support climate or tax provisions in the bill. This comes after months of negotiations to try to get Manchin's vote, because obviously his vote is crucial in an evenly divided 50-50 Senate. CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now live. Bill, what specific provisions was Manchin rejecting here?
24: Well, pretty much all of them, Jake. It started with the $2 trillion Build Back Better plan, which was a combination of carrots and sticks. Uh, Over the months, uh, Manchin fought all of the sticks that would penalize the big polluters. And then they had a package that he thought that they colleagues thought he might agree on, uh, a bunch of carrots, incentives to develop a cleaner energy or carbon capture technology. And it seems like he he doesn't want anything to do with that either. Uh, Senator Martin Heimrich, a fellow member of the Senate Energy National Resources Committee, said his refusal to act is infuriating, makes me question why he is chairman of the committee. But. I don't know that it should be all that surprising. As Maya Angela once said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Here's Joe Manchin 12 years ago.
19: I sued EPA and I'll take dead aim at the cap and trade bill. Because it's bad for West Virginia.
24: When a coal man uh, whose entire family and identity is wrapped up in coal country puts a literal bullet in your own party's climate plan, He's trying to show you who he is. And, and I don't know why there would be any hope that he's going to change his mind. He says that maybe when the inflation numbers come out uh, in August, when Congress is basically in recess, he might reconsider then. But then they're up against the deadline of getting reconciliation done uh, by September. So anyone, uh, any other country around the world just has to look at this, Jake, and think this is not a serious country. When it comes to dealing with climate.
1: And the longer it takes for the United States to really tackle this issue, I presume the more expensive it becomes to achieve anything.
24: Absolutely. I mean, the economists predict, you know, this will cost in the trillions of dollars. There have been nine billion dollar events, according to NOAA and NASA, already this year. We're in the 450th straight month of temperatures above the 20th century average. If you're under the age of 37, you've never seen a cooler than average month on earth. And it's only going to get hotter. And in the meantime, just hours after this, you see President Biden fist bumping, you know, with the murderous head of a petrostate. You know, in an alternate reality, you'd have petrostate princes coming to Washington, pledging to reform in order to be part of a new energy uh, revolution. Instead, we're stuck in, in the same old, Patterns, and it's only going to get worse.
1: All right, Bill, I'll meet you on Earth, too. Appreciate please, it. Please, please. Let's discuss. Uh, Abby, let me start with you. Uh, Senator Manchin is pushing back on reports that he pulled the plug. Uh, he says, Well, I want you to take a listen to what he told a West Virginia radio station earlier today about his discussions with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. I said, Chuck, can we just wait until the inflation figures come out in July? Until
19: basically the Uh, Fed rate, the reserve? Are they going to raise interest? How much more and how much damaging is that going to be? And then make a decision what we can do and how much we can do. He took that as no, I guess, and came out with this big thing last night. And I don't know why they did that. I I guess they tried to put pressure on me, but they've been doing that for over a year now. It
1: doesn't make any sense at all. So that's his perspective. How do Democrats in the Senate see it? Because I think it's a little different than that. Yeah,
13: I mean, I think they see it as they've seen this movie before. And uh, Joe Manchin saying, let's wait until the next set of numbers come out. And then the next set of numbers come out really only seems like a delay tactic to a lot of Democrats. The sense that I get is just, I mean, it's deep frustration Burning anger in some corners with Mansion and how he's handling this. Uh, in some ways, I think Democrats would be less angry if he just said,
10: mm-hmm. "No
13: means no.. Yep. And just moved on. But this idea that he's still at the table when they don't believe that he truly is, is I think what is really... I mean, the well is poisoned right now, just to say the least. The White House, though, I think they still... They would like to get something done with Joe Manchin, even if it is just a small sliver of something, because they know that something in this climate is better than nothing.
1: Well, let's go to Progressive at the table. What, what's your view of... Uh, <laughs>
16: well, I mean, he's you know he's always the victim. That's the thing, right? It's always like... Every time this happens, it's like, what? Me? Who? Why, Why are people... At attacking me. I don't understand. I'm so confused. Oh, I was dragging this on forever and ever and pretending like I was going to go along with it. And at the last minute, pull the plug because of inflation. I mean, we have seen this movie before. And so this is this is a mostly, as Bill was saying, it, it turned into a bill that was crafted for him, mostly carrots. Right. So it's not even really that radical of a bill. And he should have just said he wasn't going to go along with it. Instead, he does it in a way that causes the maximum damage to the Democrats. Right. So it's like (laughs) the maximum damage right before the midterms make Biden and, you know, and, and the Democrats look weak and just drag them along. And then it hurts them politically on top of you. Not doing what you should do I, because I'm apparently so like like
17: do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I was just going to say, but well, what about Chuck Schumer? Isn't he the majority leader? Isn't he supposed to be doing these things? Is he supposed to know how to count votes, though, and, and I, kind of whip? He's his the
16: caucus? vote. That's the point. I mean, that's so, so, just, that's so. So different. why does so he? A, video so video. So why does he? Man. not seen, That is so disingenuous. He's, he's like
17: you know he's the who's the Lucy to Charlie Brown, right? No, Pull the football no, away every time. The point
16: is, you can say fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, yes, they should stop running to Joe Manchin and think he's going to do something. I mean, he's from Westford. Virginia and he makes yes. tons of money yeah. off of coal. Let's just, like, we know well, what's you, going to, on here.
3: To
1: take your point, though, yeah. <laughs> you're saying, if I'm reading it correctly, Chuck Schumer is not exactly Lyndon Johnson, no, right? Well, he's I mean, not Chuck exactly, Sh- like, he put Manchin as chairman of the natural resources.
17: Exactly, he's, he's, listen, it's like in Pennsylvania, there's a county called Carbon County. What do you think they make in Carbon County? Right. Coal, right? Like, it's West Virginia, coal miner's daughter. Joe Manchin is never gonna vote for anything, that, that does anything. Then he
21: itself.
16: shouldn't be uh, It going. It to.
21: Goes, I think <laughs> That's I sort point. of I agree with Kirsten. I mean, I, I I think some of this is you say like why are you fooled again? And it's Joe Manchin has the idea of what Joe Manchin is in the U.S. Senate, right? Joe Manchin is the guy who works across party lines and gets stuff done. <laughs> so he keeps putting himself in that position. Then he acts like oh my gosh. I, yeah. What happened? Every, everyone is misunderstood, except for you. if you keep getting misunderstood and everyone thinks something else, you may not be the one who's misunderstood. or, or, or
1: maybe he's just maybe Chuck Schumer's not interpreting what he's saying. correctly. Well, it's not just so Chuck one Schumer. thing that Manchin oh. said that, that just because nobody's defending <laughs> him. But one thing he said recently uh, or in the last year because it's, it's been playing out for a long time, people said he needs to be more progressive. He said, I'm not a progressive. If you want more progressives in the Senate, Elect more progressives. Yeah,
13: this is his superpower. He's the only guy <laughs> with a D next to his name that can get elected yep. in the state of West Virginia. So basically, he can do whatever he wants. And that is what he is doing. On the other hand, though, I mean, look, I think Chris sorry right. Manchin thinks of himself as incredibly deliberative. Mm-hmm. Maybe like the personification of the Senate. But I, that is not interpreted that way by the people that he is engaging with the other side of this negotiation, which is his fellow Democrats, they just see it as flaky. And he's done nothing really, frankly, to change that perception.
1: So you were talking about the interpretation of Biden being weak. Let's turn to another topic on that subject, which is uh, his going to Saudi Arabia and fist bumping with uh, the man that he said he would turn into a pariah. Now, President Biden did say that he brought up the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi uh, today uh, to the crown prince. Let's roll that.
3: With respect to the murder of Khashoggi, I raised it at the top of the meeting, making it clear what I thought of it at the time and what I think of it now. And it was exactly, I was straightforward and direct in discussing it. I made my view crystal clear. I said very straightforwardly, for an American president to be silent on an issue of human rights is this consistent with, inconsistent with who we are and who I am.
1: Now, to be fair... American presidents genuflecting before the Saudis is a long and shameful tradition and it's bipartisan. But
13: Biden did run running for president and say he was going to turn MBS into a pariah, which was probably a mistake. I mean, the reality is, is that you no president, uh, American president at this moment in history is going to be able to do that. I think he knew that at the time, but campaigns are campaigns. You have to say what you have to say. The, the But the <laughs> handling of this meeting, I it is beyond understanding, making a big deal about whether there would or would not be a handshake and then choosing a fist bump as if that would be better than a handshake. The White House uh, really took a bad hand and played it really poorly. <laughs> totally Totally. And that agree. is is—that no, is no the, pun pun really the moral is. of the theory. But this has <laughs> been, <laughs> no
21: this yeah. has been a, a month of... Is it going to be the handshake? Is it, Oh, it's the fist bump. I mean, they, they turned it into a thing when it didn't necessarily have to be. That meeting is always going to be a grin and bear it. We're in this to your point, Jake. American presidents have done this for a very long time. We're in this because we sort of have to be in it. I don't love that we're in it. You know, you saw that in Joe Biden's statement like it's better than what it's better than what uh, uh, Donald Trump said to Vladimir Putin when Vladimir Putin said, well, I didn't uh, I didn't interfere in the election. And and Donald Trump said, well, he said he didn't interfere. So what am I going to do? It's a better statement than that.
1: But But it it is. It is. The Trump context is important because Trump did not pretend that he cared about Khashoggi and Biden did. And just to remind people, this is what Biden said on the campaign trail.
3: We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia.
1: I guess the question is, if we have to, if no matter what, we're going to have an American president shamelessly kissing the ass of the Saudis. um, Is it better that they're honest about it (laughs) or that they pretend that they're going to be something else?
17: I mean, look, look, that Joe Biden there who is like pounding the table. Right. I'm going to make him pay. And then the sheepish Joe Biden, you just saw in the previous clip, saying, I told him it was at the top
1: of our list. I made sure he knew he was in the doghouse. Bill Clinton did that. With this, yeah. Remember, Bill Clinton did that with the Chinese, remember? Yeah, he did the same thing. He criticized George H.W. Bush for countering you know, to the Chinese. The, and Abby's men. point, it's
17: on the campaign trail. Right? He's on the yeah. campaign trail doing things. This is why I think Biden's popularity is in the tank, right? When you campaign, you're going to be this, this kind of character, and then you get in the office and you're completely 180 degrees out on most issues, right? People in America are scratching their heads saying, this isn't the guy we elected. We don't want this guy.
1: That's and, the problem for Biden. And Kirsten, Hashogi's uh, uh, fiance reacted on Twitter to the meeting, writing a tweet that her hus- her her would have been husband, would have written. Mm-hmm. Um, what Jamal Hashoggi would tweet today, Hey, POTUS, is this the accountability you promised for my murder? The blood of MBS's next victim is on your hands. What do you think?
16: I mean, look, I, I think there's two different issues here. One is should he have gone to Saudi Arabia and the other is should he have done a FISPA, right? So I so I, I think most of us understand that that she's never going to be happy with what he's going to do in terms of the policy and in terms of the fact the United States deals with them and, and now needs to do even more because of gas prices and those kinds of calculations. What he didn't need to do was the fist bump that w- made it look kind of like a fun little meeting. Yep. And like, uh, we're just a couple of bros, like yep. fist bumping each other. And it's like, that is completely the wrong message. It is not, I'm here to hold you accountable. I'm here to, you know, put your feet to the fire. It's kind of making light of it. And then when he's asked about it, he laughed and I just don't think that
13: that's the right message. I mean, a
17: handshake would have been far better. Like Chris saying, yeah. shake the hand, get it over just with. Just do
13: it. Just, yeah. I mean, there, it's it's yeah. not it's Speaking not great either there, way. There but, is absolutely uh, no good way to no, 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 exactly but right. But a fist bump no a fist
17: way fist
0: out of this makes situation.
13: it seem... That's, that's the right he word. Didn't yeah. have it to sounds go. go. Exactly. He
1: didn't yeah. have to go. Anyway, thanks to all of you for being here. And if, like me, you did not just get enough Abby Phillip, <laughs> I will remind you, tune in to CNN for Inside Politics Sunday with Abby Phillip. That he is means su- that. Sunday, <laughs> a Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Coming up, how worried should Democrats be about the so-called precinct strategy that Steve Bannon's pushing? Pretty worried, I think. That's next. In our politics lead now, Steve Bannon's trial is set to begin Monday. Bannon, a former advisor to President Trump, is facing contempt of Congress charges for failing to comply with the subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection. On Sunday, a CNN special report, Steve Bannon, divided we fall, will take a deep dive into Bannon's plan to reshape the U.S. government, the Republican Party, and indeed the United States. Take a listen to this clip. These
2: three women and millions like them are what Bannon hopes is the future of the Republican Party and the United States. Bannon calls it the precinct strategy.
21: Ergo, we're going to take over everything from school boards all the way up to the House and the Senate.
10: He is really talking about, from the ground up, remaking a party that is a Trump loyal, MAGA loyal kind of party.
21: Okay, I want to start with Dan Schultz, Precinct Strategy.
2: The Precinct Strategy's author is a Bannon regular, Dan Schultz, a local Arizona attorney.
21: If we conservatives don't take over the Republican Party, we're going to lose our republic. President Trump comes out and endorses the Precinct Strategy.
2: His step-by-step tutorial for taking over Republican politics is now considered almost gospel. Inspiring thousands of believers in the election lie to get involved. GOP leaders in more than 20 counties in mostly battleground states told CNN they've seen a spike in participation.
13: The precinct committee strategy—that's the first thing. Dan Schultz. I'm like, oh my gosh! Right. This, I'm calling everybody I know. Did you even know that we had a precinct in my neighborhood? I'm the committee person now. <laughs> you know, just just feeling like, hey, I'm 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 actually doing something, and now
2: they are all doing something because of Bannon. Jody Diodati is a long shot, running for Stacey Abrams' old seat in the Georgia House of Representatives. Wendy keel is running for Georgia's House District 52 and may actually win. Stacey Altieri is now a Republican precinct chair, registering voters and recruiting poll watchers.
14: But I'm a precinct committee person. We need folks... We'll have someone get in touch with you because my friends and I decided we don't want to sit around bitching anymore. It was time to take it back. And that's what we're
2: doing. Without exception, they believe Joe Biden lost in November 2020. And the election was stolen.
16: Did Biden get more than Obama? No way. No way. They said he got the most votes of any president ever. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the energy around Obama
14: and there was no more that, energy around Obama oh yeah, than
16: there oh is. Yeah. Biden. I just didn't see that lining up.
10: For me. My thing with it is I just would like to know what happened. And I do think that the evidence is there and it's not being seen.
1: Just to be clear, there is no evidence of massive voter fraud Joe Biden won legally and legitimately. And Every president becomes the first one to get that many votes because of population growth. That happens every four years. Drew Griffin joins us now. Drew, these three women, who obviously have their issues with facts and truth, they were inspired to get involved in local politics because of Steve Bannon. How much has Steve Bannon reshaped the GOP at this grassroots level?
2: It is amazing. From precinct committee people, school boards, on up to secretary of states and attorney general candidates, and the, and the candidate for governor, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, Jake, it is an entire political movement based on a manufactured lie, mostly by Steve Bannon, who continues to pull on this grievance because of this lie, and he's trying to take over the entire government of the United States. That is his goal. All of it, all of it, built on the lie that somehow this election was stolen from people and that they have to claw it back. Basically, that their United States has been stolen from them and you can continue to go all the way down the road. But I think the bottom line is the white Western Christian world of Steve Bannon thinks somebody is trying to take away the white Western Christian
1: world of Steve Bannon. So quite remarkable. Are sane Republicans, establishment Republican figures or Democrats even remotely uh, motivating voters this way? You know, they're not. I mean, until the abortion
2: ruling by the Supreme Court, there was really no motivating factor uh, that would get the Democrats angry enough to get out there. And I don't even think that compares with this level of um, the unhinged from reality kind of drive that this kind of ultra mega Republican Party has. I've never seen anything quite like it. We've been in convention halls where everybody is clapping uh, because somebody's talking about this stolen election uh, business, even after everybody with any kind of factual basis knows it just didn't happen. They don't believe it.
1: All right. Drew Griffin, thank you so much. It's, it's not a pretty picture. No, it's not. It's, it's distressing. No. I and mean, you can watch CNN special report on Steve Bannon, a very important report. Steve Bannon, Divided We Fall, this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, there is a new three-digit phone number to deal with the growing mental health crisis in the United States, and that's ahead. Finally, today, an important new phone number to remember, and it's easy, 988-988. Starting tomorrow, those three digits can connect you to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Veterans Crisis Line, 988. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people aged 10 to 14, as well as young adults, 25 to 34. So remember, 988. There is help for you. There is love for you. Be sure to tune in this Sunday for CNN State of the Union. My colleague, Dana Bash, will be joined by Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, and Virginia Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a Democrat who's on the committee investigating the insurrection. That's at 9 a.m. At it, and at noon again, Eastern Sunday morning. Until then... You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you miss an episode of the show, you can download an episode of The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. It's true, all two hours right there. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's brought the Situation Room to Saudi Arabia.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.